listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. And I'm Molly Ruth, producer for the podcast. Superpower Curiosity Season 1 is all about overcoming divisions. Richard writes about this extensively in his book, It's a Freaking Mess, How to Thrive in Divisive Times. For this episode, Beyond All Prejudice, Richard reads an excerpt from It's a Freaking Mess. Beyond All Prejudice I was riding on the subway in New York City a while ago and saw a morose-looking guy sitting opposite me. I was busy making all kinds of assumptions and judgments about this man when I suddenly thought, Hey, wait a minute. What am I doing? I know nothing about this guy or what kind of life he has. So, then I changed my focus and began to think about all the things we have in common. I chose some pretty universal human values like cherishing self-respect and appreciating kindness. And here's the amazing thing. In less than a minute, I felt happier. I smiled a little in reaction to my happier feeling, and then this man smiled a little too. It struck me that we are, each of us, faced with this kind of choice many times each day. Shall I focus my mind on differences between myself and others? Or shall I focus my mind on what we have in common? Which one of these two choices we make may have a big effect on our level of happiness. When we focus on differences, whether these are of race, hairstyle, dress, political party, sexual identity, country, class, education, wealth, judgment and prejudice easily follow. In this chapter, I'm focusing more on racial and political prejudices. There is a common means of overcoming these prejudices, and indeed all prejudice, as you will see at the end of this chapter. Comparison, President Theodore Roosevelt once said, is the thief of joy. When we are focused on differences, we tend to compare ways in which we are better than, or sometimes worse than, but more often better than, the other. This is a slippery slope. As soon as we make this kind of judgment, better than, worse than, we have become divisive. We have divided ourselves from the other. We have slipped, often imperceptibly, into the realm of prejudice. We have turned the other into one who is different, who is not quite one of us. We perceive this person as somewhat alien. As this process of differentiation goes on, it's a short road from alien to enemy. And then, automatically and unconsciously, we find we have to protect ourselves against the enemy we have created in our minds. This makes us tense, and tension does not feel pleasant at all. Pleasure and prejudice are inversely proportional. When we focus on commonality by contrast, we automatically relax. There's no enemy to defend against, and therefore no need to be tense. We can still disagree on a subject while recognizing and experiencing our common humanity. Remembering, for example, that we share all the same basic human attributes, like caring about family, wishing to be appreciated, loving to laugh, enjoying good food, 
and wanting to be heard. Racial prejudice. A black person and a white person are genetically somewhere between 99.9 and 99.99% identical. The genes involved with external differences in appearance, by which we divide races, amount to just one ten-thousandth of all our genetic material. In the case of these minute racial differences, our choice seems pretty compelling. Shall I focus on the 0.01% of difference between us, or shall I focus on the 99.99% of similarity? Caucasian prejudice against African Americans is a strange phenomenon. Not only is it mathematically bizarre to focus so much energy onto one ten-thousandth of another person, it is also strange in terms of our origins. An African American, as anybody knows, is an American who has family roots in Africa, even if these roots date back many generations. But the truth is, we all have family roots in Africa, no exceptions. There is overwhelming paleontological, archaeological, and genetic evidence that the human race started in the heart of Africa. Sometime, or times, in the last hundred thousand years or so, a pretty short period in geological terms, modern human beings migrated from Africa to the rest of the world. Perhaps we should speak of African Europeans, African Chinese, African Indians, African Australian Aboriginals, African Australian colonialists, African Russians, African Inuit, African Native Americans. Without this African origin, none of us would be here. We all come from the same place, Africa, and the same stock, Africans. The massively complex human cerebral cortex, the most significant differentiator between human beings and other creatures, was also created and developed in Africa. Our rational intelligence is an African product. With regard to skin colour, some of us are pure African, perhaps, while others of us have become more discoloured. When human beings migrated from Africa into the north of the Northern Hemisphere, it became advantageous to lose the natural pigmentation in the skin. In regions with a lot of sunlight, the skin needs pigmentation to protect the body from damage from ultraviolet light. It's our natural sunblock. But when Africans spread to northern areas where there was much less sunlight, a problem arose because of the vital need for vitamin D, which is manufactured in the skin in response to sunlight. In lower sunlight areas, the skin must be less pigmented to let in extra sunlight for the synthesis of vitamin D. This is probably why human skin, through a series of genetic mutations, began to lose its colour in northern climes. Today we can ingest vitamin D through our choice of diet and supplementation, so the old advantage of lighter skin in lower sunlight areas is no longer so relevant. Today, dark skin carries the original advantage of protection against ultraviolet light, which is why dark-skinned people age less visibly and are less prone to skin cancer, whereas light skin carries no known physical advantages. So why then, if prejudice based on skin colour is so strangely irrational, does it occur at all? Here are three reasons that make some kind of prejudice thinking 
But that does not mean prejudiced action. Inevitable in pretty much everyone. 1. Our sense organs are primed to notice contrasts. We tend to notice whatever is different from what we are used to. If there is one red sheep in a field of a hundred white sheep, which will you look at? We have an ancient protective mechanism that is geared to seek out differences. Walking in the wild, for example, we see hundreds of plants, yet we notice the one plant in which the branches are moving. Perhaps there is danger lurking in there. The more afraid we are, the more hyper-alert we become to the slightest difference to anything that is out of the ordinary. As soon as we fear something that is different, we tend to otherize it. Fortunately, though, we human beings also inherit enormous brain capacity, which gives us the power to observe our own reactions and make different choices. 2. We tend to otherize those who are different. Observations of mice and chimpanzees show that these animals are kinder to those considered to be kin. Chimpanzees, for example, may be very considerate of their own group, but vicious to other groups. They may attack members of alien clans, sometimes even killing them. Experiments on mice have shown that they too have tribal empathy, demonstrating empathy for cage mates in pain, but not for strangers in pain. In the same way, we human beings can be kind to those we think of as our own, but unkind and uncaring to those we deem to be different. Most of us have some empathy for people we consider to be our kin. When, however, we otherize those we consider different, we switch off our capacity for compassion. When we make a group other, the enemy so created by our minds invokes our fight-flight-anger-fear response. It is actually impossible to experience the anger-fear response and compassion at the same time. Anger-fear is an aversive response against the other. Compassion literally means feeling with. Calm is with. Passion is feeling. Anger-fear excludes. Compassion includes. Once we have this otherizing reaction, even if it is never spoken and only shows in our body language, the one we have deemed other tends to have an otherizing counter-reaction. Prejudice fosters counter-prejudice. The good news is that we do not have to go this way. Yes, we have an inbuilt tendency to otherize those we consider different, but, as I've mentioned, a biological tendency is not a biological imperative. We have also inherited a capacity for profound empathy for anyone we choose, and we are blessed with the amazing complexity of our cerebral cortex, which offers us a vast choice in understanding and reaction. 3. We respond to the pressure of a thousand cultural cues. The tendency toward divisiveness is also supported by cultural biases. In the US, a dominant white culture supplies cues, mostly unconsciously, that associate white with more than and black with less than. These cues come from assumptions held by the people we meet, from books, movies, TV, the news, etc. When the author Malcolm Gladwell took a test called the Implicit Association Test, 
had measured unconscious bias. He experienced what he described as a growing sense of mortification. Though he, like most of us, consciously thought of the various races as being equal, his results showed some, quotes, automatic preference for whites, end of quotes. Since Malcolm Gladwell has a white father and a black mother, this result was especially surprising to him. Some 80% of those who take these unconscious bias tests in the US have pro-white associations, even though the vast majority would never consider themselves even slightly racist. The test shows that our unconscious attitudes are often at variance with our stated values. It seems we just cannot help imbibing some of the norms of our culture. Recognizing our tendencies toward bias and prejudice is immensely useful. Once we admit to these tendencies, we can more easily make the choice of unprejudiced action. And unprejudiced actions reduce prejudiced thoughts and feelings. But here there is a common problem. It's called the human ego. The ego, which doesn't like to admit to weaknesses, genuinely believes I'm not prejudiced. The ego usually likes to be seen as good and so cannot easily admit to favoring one group unfairly or even to being unconsciously influenced by society's norms. This perhaps goes some distance toward explaining why so much racist action is unconscious. It might, for example, be one of the reasons why in the US a black man is 13 times more likely to be sent to prison on drug charges than a white man, even though the sentencing judges would not admit to, or probably have any recognition of, being prejudiced. Admitting our own tendencies to discriminate differences is, therefore, enormously helpful, because then we can do something about it. On the other hand, when the ego denies prejudice because it looks bad, then it is pretty much impossible to correct. The ego has convinced us that we don't have anything to correct. So, with racial prejudice, there is an initial sensory difference that can be magnified till it colors the whole canvas of our imagination. This 0.01% difference can then be used by the personal ego, I'm better than him, her, or by the collective or tribal ego, we are better than they are. Pride and prejudice. Ongoing prejudice is always based on pride in our differences, even though, as I've said, this pride can be unconscious. Political prejudice. The perceived differences with political prejudice may be initially about policies, but these differences can then be multiplied out of all proportion by pride and emotional vehemence. We are right and good. They are wrong and bad. Once the other side becomes perceived as the enemy, the adrenaline system takes over. Anger with the enemy, fear of what that enemy will do, and dehumanization of everyone who agrees with them. Once both sides of the political divide are in that adrenalized state of fear or anger, neuronal connections are closed down in our rational forebrains, and then our primitive lower brains, Republican lower brains and Democratic lower brains alike, duke it out. You have only to read some of the comments made on political websites to be shaken by the degree of scathing anger and violent hatred from both sides of the political divide. 
each side screaming about the morons on the other side. Rage may also be hidden in clever barbs of humour or the cocktail sticks of pointed innuendo, but still, no matter how indirect, these attacks can be felt by the one who is under assault. It's easy for any of us to get attracted to the drama of emotional conflict, and it's tempting to join in. But as I've mentioned, the more one side attacks, the more the other side counterattacks, and so on. This process of attack and counterattack heats up the nuanced shades of grey till they distill into two stark choices black white, either or, us them. There is no more understanding of the other. Compassion has disappeared. It is very hard for such emotionally charged enemies to have a conversation. In theory, the solution is simple. Drop the otherizing accusations, diffuse the anger, and recognize the human heart of the other. But how on earth do we do this when we are in a rage with what they have done? Fortunately, there are practical means of diffusing the situation. We don't have to try to fight our own upset or fear or anger. All we need to do is to change our focus, as you'll see at the end of this chapter. A solution to all prejudice. I focused on political and racial prejudice as common examples that illustrate the process of prejudicial judgments. This is not to discount the many other pain-creating prejudices we may have. Religious prejudice, gender prejudice, prejudices about degree of education, prejudices against poor people, and so on. All our prejudices share the same key causes, and, to a great extent, these lead from one to the next in five steps. Here they are. 1. We otherize those we consider different, even though the differences we focus on are such a tiny aspect of the total person. 2. As soon as we otherize, we produce adrenaline and cortisol in a reaction to the enemy we have created. 3. Once we are in the adrenalized state of fight-flight, we can no longer feel empathy or compassion. 4. We take pride in our differences, thinking we are better or more special than the other. 5. We often attempt to disguise our pride because it is not socially acceptable. This disguise may be so effective that we are completely unaware of being prejudiced. All our prejudices also share the same key solution, that is, to shift our thinking from concentration on our differences to a focus on our common ground. There are many ways of doing this. One of the most effective, as measured in hundreds of academic studies on prejudice, is to make friends with someone in the other group. In doing this, we naturally shift our focus from being wary about the other to feeling a sense of togetherness. There has been a considerable amount of research done on the neuroscience of prejudice. When two strangers meet, especially if they do not identify with each other, one of the more primitive areas of the brain, the amygdala, lights up. The amygdala is the part of the brain that activates our fight-or-flight responses. Other researchers have found that the level of cortisol, one of the fight-flight hormones, increases on meeting a person whom we consider different 
but that this level quickly goes down once we make human contact with this person by working together on a mutual task. We can also rehumanize other groups through learning about them. A woman with generalized judgments about Muslims told me that she had always been clear in her mind that it was only a tiny minority of Muslims who committed acts of terror, but that she could not shift her prejudice about Muslims in general, even though she knew it to be irrational. Her prejudice shifted when she read a book I've mentioned before, Destiny Disrupted, A History of the World Through Islamic Eyes. She also said that she gained empathy for the Arabic world after seeing the movie Queen of the Desert, starring Nicole Kidman. Kidman played the role of Gertrude Bell, an Englishwoman who traveled in the desert with the Bedouin in the early 1900s, and who negotiated with the British on the Bedouin's behalf. In Arabia, Bill experienced the contrast between British political duplicity and a strong valuation of loyalty practiced by the Arabs she had come to know. TV soap operas like One Day at a Time provide a humorous and empathic picture of Hispanic immigrants in the US. Kim's Convenience does the same for Korean immigrants in Canada. TV, books, movies, internet searches, there are many different ways we can educate ourselves about the other, just by being willing to step beyond our usual choices. When we begin the search for the humanity in the other, there are two sources of enjoyment that help dispel the old prejudice. One is the pleasure in diversity, seeing the amazing differences in the ways in which we human beings approach life and interpret the world. The second is the pleasure in empathy the joy in the recognition of how we all, in fundamental matters, are very much the same. When we judge these differences, it is virtually impossible to feel empathy. But as soon as we focus on commonality, then empathy and compassion naturally follow. One of the ways you can make this switch is to take part in the following exercise. Exercise, the pleasure of finding common ground. This exercise involves active visualization, so please do not do it while driving. If you're driving now, you can fast forward to the end of the chapter. The exercise demonstrates how to shift gears from focus on differences to focus on common ground. You will need to choose a person to work with, though this person does not need to know anything about what you're doing. In other words, this exercise is completely private. It is your own exploration. The person you work with could be someone of a different race, different religion, or different political position. Or it could be someone who dresses differently from you, or someone who just seems to irk you for no obvious reason. You can try it on anyone at all. There are always differences that we can choose to focus on, or not. The exercise works in any public space in which it is safe for you to give your undivided attention. Sitting in a subway and observing someone sitting opposite you would be an example. It also works at home with a family member, a friend, or even someone on TV. You can also do this exercise entirely in your imagination, focusing on and visualizing a person you know. Whomever you choose, in whatever scenario, it's best if they are sitting or standing still so that you can see or visualize them well.
The exercise takes about seven minutes. Please feel free to pause this audio at any point. Okay. Start by choosing the person you'd like to work with. Either someone who is physically present or someone you bring to your awareness and your imagination. If possible, have a pen and notebook or paper to write on and make sure you are sitting comfortably. Now, take a few deep breaths and relax. You can pause the audio while you do this. Okay. Start by looking at the person. If the person is physically present, don't stare, of course. You can look away and then look back after a while. If you're doing this exercise entirely in your imagination, close your eyes and focus on the person's image. If you can't see an exact image, that's fine. Simply focus on imagining that the person is present for you in some way. It can be a thought about the person's presence with no clear image at all. This works just as well. Now, focus on how this person is different from you. Make some mental judgments about this person. You can use any ones you usually use, or make some new ones. Allow yourself, for this exercise, to really get into this silent judging, just for a minute. You can pause the audio while you do this. If your eyes are open, close them now. Evaluate how you feel as you make such silent judgments using a happiness scale of 1 to 10, 10 being happiest. How do you feel when making your silent judgments about the other person? From 1 to 10, 10 being happiest. Now, open your eyes and write down the number. This is your differences score. When you've written down the number, close your eyes again. Now, shift your focus deliberately onto what you have in common with this other person. You and this other person both share the same basic human wishes, needs and values. Like, for instance, the wish for acceptance by others. The wish for affection, the need for self-respect, the need for safety and shelter. You very likely share a similar desire for trust, for warmth, for having fun, for making a contribution, for self-expression, for purpose, for independence. Choose any one or two of such universal human wishes, needs or values that stand out as important for you. And then imagine that these same human values are just as strong in, just as important to, the person you're thinking about. If this person is physically present, open your eyes and see them anew with these human values that you both share. You can pause the audio as you do this. Now, how do you feel on the same happiness scale of 1 to 10, 10 being happiest, when you experience what you have in common with the other person. Write down your score. 
This is your commonality score. Now compare your two scores, your differences score and your commonality score. Did your level of happiness change? This is the end of the exercise. You can repeat it any time. You can practice it in a subway, a bus, at home. With repetition, it gets easier and easier to experience the pleasure of finding common ground with others. Most people who do this exercise find their commonality score on happiness to be significantly higher than their differences score. If you think about it, it's pretty amazing. The exercise, in addition to showing how prejudice can quickly be overcome, demonstrates how a simple change of mental focus can affect our level of happiness, and that we actually have quite a lot of control over both our thinking and our feeling. We are all the inheritors of a massive cerebral cortex, courtesy of Africa, which has the power to choose its focus. We have the power to fix our gaze on tiny differences if we want. We also have the power, whenever we would like to do so, to change our focus onto commonality. Many people who have done this exercise are surprised at how thinking of a wish or need that they value in themselves, and then imagining this same wish or need as being equally important in the other, creates almost instant empathy and compassion. Shifting from focus on differences to focus on that which we have in common is both easy to do and powerful in effect. And the more you do this, the easier it is to make the shift. The reason it is so pleasurable is based both on what you are relinquishing and what you are moving toward. You are relinquishing prejudice or judgment in which you have created an enemy in your mind, an enemy who is inevitably associated with protective tension in your body, and therefore with a feeling of contraction. In moving toward commonality, by contrast, you experience empathy and compassion, and these are relaxed, warm, expanded and pleasurable feelings. Thank you for listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. Episode 19 comes out in two weeks. Tune in to hear Richard speak on reconnecting with family and friends. And I'd like to especially thank Mama Chai for her glowing review of the podcast. She says, Curiosity is a true bridge. It unites us in delightful ways. Dr. Gillette's podcast, Superpower Curiosity, is a game changer. And practicing what Dr. Gillette shares about curiosity makes wonder and delight easily accessible. The other day, rather than seeing someone wearing a t-shirt that I would have interpreted as, oh, their belief must be dot dot dot, I paused and thought, no. I'm going to be curious and ask what the t-shirt means to them. What a wonderful conversation opener and a satisfying way to be in the world. We both left the conversation in a happier frame of mind and heart. Thank you for the kind words, Mama Chai. How gratifying to hear that you are putting your insights into action. 
If you'd like to get in touch, you can always reach Richard at superpowercuriosity at gmail.com. And if you have something nice to say about the podcast, feel free to write a review on Apple Podcasts. Even just a quick sentence or two makes a big difference. Till next time, stay curious! Stay curious!